0: Welcome to the Modern Art Notes podcast. I'm Tyler Green. This week, Elisa Niesenbaum, whose portraits bring honor to those who work and to those who dance. Niesenbaum's work is on view at the Cleveland Museum of Art in Picturing Motherhood Now, a look at how contemporary artists represent motherhood. It's on view through March thirteenth, 2022. The Kemper Museum of Contemporary Art in Kansas City is showing Elisa Niesenbaum, Aqui se puede, Here You Can an exhibition of large-scale portraits of individuals connected to Kansas City salsa music and dance communities. It's up through July 31st next year. Tate Liverpool and the Minneapolis Institute of Arts are among the other museums that have presented solo exhibitions of Niesenbaum's work. On the second segment, Davide Gasparotto joins me to discuss the Getty Museum's acquisition of a spectacular Jacopo Bassano painting, The Miracle of the Quails. Please remember to give us a five-star rating and a review at Apple Podcasts or wherever you download the show. It'll help new people find us. Lisa Niesenbaum, after the break. The Modern Art Museum of Fort Worth presents the exhibition Milton Avery, created by Edith Devani and organized by the Royal Academy of Arts London in collaboration with the Modern and the Wadsworth Athenaeum Museum of Art. Avery is considered one of North America's greatest 20th century colorists. His career fell between the movements of the American Impressionists and the Abstract Expressionists, leaving him to forge a staunchly independent path. This comprehensive exhibition brings together a selection of approximately 70 paintings from the 1910s to the mid-1960s that are among his most celebrated. These works typically feature scenes of daily life, including portraits of loved ones and serene landscapes from his visits to Maine and Cape Cod. The color, sensibility, and balance that run throughout his work had a major influence on the next generation of artists. On view through January 30th in Fort Worth. Now on view at the Getty Center, Holbein, Capturing Character in the Renaissance, is the first major presentation of Hans Holbein the Younger's work in the United States. Named a show to see this season by the New York Times, the exhibition features captivating portraits the German artists created for a wide range of patrons, including scholars, statesmen, and courtiers, in the 16th century, explore Renaissance culture, and discover how Holbein's drawings and paintings eloquently evoke his subject's personal identities. This exhibition is co-organized by the Morgan Library and Museum and is presented in English and Spanish. We invite you to make free advance reservations at getty.edu today. On Thursday, November 11th, please join me, Odile Donald Odita, and the Sheldon Museum of Art for a live audience digital taping of the Modern Art Notes podcast. Odita's painting, Passage, is on view now in the exhibition Point of Departure at the Sheldon. Other major Oditas are on view at the Virginia Museum of Fine Arts, the Nasher Museum of Art at Duke University, and more. To join the live audience taping via Zoom, go to go.unl.edu odita to register or visit the events page on the Sheldon's website, at SheldonArtMuseum.org. Bemis Center for Contemporary Arts in Omaha, Nebraska, presents a special live taping of the Modern Art Notes podcast with a performance by Maya Dunitz, live at Low End on November 10th at 7 p.m. Central. Dunitz is a Tel Aviv, Israel-based artist and musician who has performed internationally for the past 30 years. She works in the thin lines between music, visual art, performance, technological research, and philosophy. Her compositions are commissioned by renowned performers and ensembles around the world. She is currently the Sound Art and Experimental Music Artist-in-Residence at Bema Center in collaboration with artist David Lemoyne. They're creating eight new site-responsive installations for Dunitz's solo exhibition at Bema Center, which opens in May 2022. Performances at Low End are an integral part of Bema Center's Sound Art and Experimental Music program and are presented with lead support from the Andrew W. Mellon Foundation. This one-of-a-kind program provides unique resources to support the research, creation, and presentation of new work by artists working in sound, composition, voice, and experimental forms of music, and low-end, a live music venue. Free admission. In-person attendance requires RSVP at bemacenter.org slash events. The performance and the Modern Art Notes podcast will also stream live at twitch.tv slash bemacenter and at facebook.com slash bemacenter. And we're back. Elisa Niesenbaum, welcome to the Modern Art Notes podcast.
1: Thank you. It's such a pleasure to be here. Let's
0: start by talking about who ends up in in your paintings. How do you think about, how do you prioritize who should be represented in a painting?
1: It kind of starts pretty organically. The way I paint now kind of started from teaching. So I was teaching a class and I was so interested in the stories of the people I was teaching, that you know, the kind of stories that came up. I was teaching this class in 2012 uh, at Immigrant Movement International, a space started by Tanya Bruguera in Queens. And I just decided that I really wanted to pay tribute to the particular groups of people, particularly undocumented immigrant women who were taking my class back then. And so I guess that's one way of of saying that it started a way of painting where I was depicting people that haven't been seen usually in uh, public art spaces as museums as much as they should be, you know, so people that are oftentimes underrepresented in a public institutional framework. So yes, I guess I choose people... From thinking of the history of portraiture, the history of of oil painting portraiture, and who should be depicted in that sphere.
0: You've maintained that address across both paintings of individuals and paintings of two people, pairs or couples, and paintings of groups of people, like a dozen or more people. Is there a difference in how you think through who you make a group portrait of, such as pictures you've made of people at the Hope Community Garden in Minneapolis and the Centro Tyrone Guzman in Minneapolis, as opposed to how you think of painting one person, selecting one person.
1: Sure. I mean, I'm really interested in showing group portraits of thinking about how people assemble in large workforces, you know, so thinking about a couple of years ago, I think it was in 2018, 19, I had a show at Anton Kern Gallery, which was called Choreografías. and I was thinking about choreography as a way of thinking about dance, you know, but also how different workforces assemble and what kind of allyship or kind of uh, relationships are formed between a different within a workforce, you know, and so I'm interested in making kind of visible the relationships, the friendships, the kind of solidarity between a workforce. Or sometimes when I paint an individual, it's just a one-to-one interaction that I have that's a kind of a very intimate relationship with a particular person that oftentimes I've known over a long period of time. And so it's a very kind of close, close-looking. I mean, even when I paint groups of people, I paint them one at a time. So even though they're forming this large group portrait, I paint each person one by one, oftentimes from life. It shows like various kind of indi- individuals within a group. So in some ways, it's no different, the large group portraits and the individuals, because it's the individual within the larger group that's that I try to pay attention to.
0: You mentioned that you got started in the work you've been doing for the last decade by talking with people and and, and, and enjoying hearing their stories and wanting to represent them in paintings and in recent years as you've become prominent you've accepted residencies at places like the Minneapolis Institute of Arts and you've been able to to be in specific sites and make pictures about and of those sites and and of people within them how have you approached process when it comes to those group portraits and specific sites and then inevitably how has the pandemic changed that <laughs>
1: Yeah I was I was in residence starting from I mean first at Immigrant Movement International then I was in residence at the Mayor's Office of Immigrant Affairs where I painted a gr- a large group of women who were all in residence then during Obama's time and so in some ways the backgrounds or the kind of the space in which my subjects are located is kind of a manifestation of the relationships I see over a long period of time with particular individuals so the backgrounds I was also in residence at as you mentioned at the Minneapolis Institute of Art and the Brixton Underground
0: which is a which is a London tube station of course
1: yes exactly and most recently I made a group of paintings that were uh, at tate liverpool and they were particularly about frontline workers healthcare workers nurses doctors all kinds of people that work at at three different hospitals and so i was supposed to do this work on site and i wasn't able to even go there but i used a really long process of using photography and zoom which which is a technology that now i've started to employ in my process itself to have these kind of long conversations and almost witnessing of of the particular people I was painting, but remotely. And so again, this kind of collage like experience of like putting these these backgrounds that might point to all these different temporal experiences into one painting, you know, because they're not exactly from one city as they used to be. When I first started in you know in 2012 when I started making these paintings of a group of women based in uh, immigrant movement international in Queens
0: you mentioned the Tate Liverpool project not only will we have an image of that up on manpodcast.com Tate Liverpool produced a very very cool 10 or so 12 minute video about the work and the people you painted and we will embed that in the show page at manpodcast.com it's it's pretty darn cool you were talking about collaging the way you 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 build the group of people within a picture within within a composition and i wanted to talk a little bit about how you do that how do you determine within a picture how people should touch or or at least overlap and what you want to tell the viewer with how your figures relate to each other and i started thinking about this cuz there's a huge difference between how people interact In, say, Stephanie and Christina, which is a 2014 painting in which two people seem, and I mean this in the best possible way, stacked on top of each other. (laughs) And in your pictures of salsa dancers, which you mentioned um, a moment ago, which were shown together in in an exhibition at Anton Kern Gallery. And then people interact a whole different way in the London Underground work.
1: I feel like it's almost unconscious in my work because I do feel the touch Touch is has always been an important aspect in my work. Obviously, the the tactile elements of painting, you know, I like the paint to be watery and kind of, you know, elicit almost like mimetic experience of what it feels like to put the the paint down. But I feel like within the paintings, people are often either embraced or touching each other in, in various different ways. You know, my earliest work. It was usually various different generations, you know, of of oftentimes families from Mexico or Central America who were hugging each other or kind of. It stacked on top of each other, like you said, like three different generations or various different ways that people were were embracing each other. And I even think about Lucy Riegerai, who used to ta- say that that touch is is a very feminist, not only a feminist, but but it's about being in relation. You know, touch is always about being in relation to somebody. So I think about it as as a sense of kind of reciprocity or or relational sense in some ways in comparison to vision, which can be from a distance. So in some ways it goes back into the ethics of my work, which is about kind of witnessing, but yeah, I guess the, the workforce paintings are much more about relationships between a various, a large group of people that, that aren't familiar relationships, you know? And so, and so sometimes they're not as, as embracing, obviously. and, and there might be like friends that are overlapping in some ways, but it's like the, the individual within the groups. So, so oftentimes they might be slightly isolated or, you know, how an individual might be engaged in their own thinking process within that larger group. The salsa dancers, I painted my friend Camilo and his friends I made a painting called the, the cuatro, Mis Cuatro Gracias, My Four Graces, you know, which was him and all his friends, and they're kind of dancing. So obviously with the salsa paintings, it's it's a kind of very sensual environment, and people might be engaged in a different kind of tactile experience as well there. We're going to come back to that painting
0: a little later on. Long-time listeners to this show know that I will not pass up an opportunity to get to Matisse, so we're going to get to Matisse uh, and that painting. <laughs>
1: I'm excited.
0: (laughs) That's interesting what you say about touch, because I've thought about that a lot as I've looked at your work. You know, one of the painters that I think your work is somewhat in discourse with is David Hockney. There are times your palette, you know, skates really close to the brightness of his palette and even some of your your, your color combinations. But when, when Hockney does portraits of two or more people, boy, they're often, if not almost always, pretty disconnected from each other. In your pictures of multiple people, you invent ways for them to be in physical contact. I'm thinking of a work like La Talaverita, Sunday Morning New York Times from, from 2016, where a man and woman are on a couch reading the Sunday paper, and you have used a, well, Matisse again, a Matisse pose that is borrowed from classical art, probably Michelangelo, on you know as your way of showing the woman. And the man is sitting there reading the paper too, and one of her legs is over hers, and he's reaching out, holding her leg, which could be incidental, but it it connects the whole painting, not just him to her, but the two of them to the textile and the patterning in the background and to the Virgin Mary, probably the Virgin of Guadalupe on on the wall. Do you assemble in your mind <laughs> a picture of the way an art historian or a critic might deconstruct it in the way I just described it, or or is it less premeditated than that
1: (laughs) that's interesting that you compare that one to to this historical reference no i i've it's very intuitive and that particular painting and this particular family are some of the closest to my heart because it's a family veronica marisa and gustavo who i've painted since 2012 and who i've maintained a relationship for now over you know, over nine years. And I painted them over and over again. You know, Marisa was a child when I started painting her. She was 10. And and now she's in her first years of, of college. And I've helped her with her, you know, her entrance exams to college. And so this family I've had a long relationship with. And the formal aspects really cl- come from, in some ways, this relationship I've had in the, and with them you know visiting them in their home and they they assumed that pose it was a long set of photographs a long session that we had and then they they took up that pose yeah so I've I've painted this is daughter and father in that painting and the background are talavera which is a craft that that is very traditional in puebla where marisa gustavo and veronica are from and so, this again, this kind of juxtaposition or collaging of something that's a craft tradition from where they're from, and then the New York Times, which is where they're located now, you know, their contingent situation in Queens in in New York City, reading the paper. And yes, the Virgen de Guadalupe in the background, which is a calendar I found in their home.
0: I find that I can often parse out the art historical references and addresses in your pictures of one or two people and that I have a little harder time in the group portraits. Are there art historical models for group portraiture that you look to or think about?
1: Well, yes. Yeah, the group portraits. I'm really interested in this kind of the 19th century group portraiture tradition, you know, where there would be these huge assemblages of of especially male painters, you know, uh, everyone, Cezanne, Bernard, uh, giving tribute I'm trying to remember the the name of that exact painting but anyway just this long tradition of kind of groups of relationships between artists in some ways and so I, I guess the large paintings I just try to fill them with as many figures as I can to kind of create a shallow depth of feel that I often do with the singular portraits you know so so that kind of tradition of kind of modernism or the 19th century painting where the paintings are, the figures are somewhat, even Even Manet pushed to the foreground of the composition is, is one of the most important references.
0: I think you're describing French, 19th century French paintings of other French painters visiting each other's studios, which are often uh, feel collaged. Um, so I, I, I get that totally. Yeah, only you're doing it a lot more brighter, if you will. You're doing it with much shoutier color and painterly exuberance. You mentioned shallow depth of field in a lot of your pictures. And for about a decade now, you have compressed space within your pictures with with, you know, pretty much every trick in a painter, in a painter's toolbox. You you often use textiles or a grid in the background of a scene as a way of pushing the scene toward us. Your floors are quite often up tilted which has of course the 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 effect of pushing the the sitters or the sitter in your pictures up against the picture plane. Why is flattening space, which is, you know, a 120-year-old modernist preoccupation, still attractive and useful to you?
1: These are all pretty unconscious things, but I I think that it's that notion of proximity, you know, that textiles also kind of imply tactility and it's kind of having the figure right up in your face. And, and I'm not so interested in one. I was never taught one point perspective, actually. So so I don't even know how to, in some ways, I don't even know how to do it. And I was an abstract painter from for a long time. I do know how to do it, but I was much more attuned to this kind of Cezanne way of painting, which is measuring, you know, measuring a figure and making everything in relation to that initial measurement rather than the kind of mathematical one point perspective way of drawing. And so when I was an abstract painter for a while there in grad school, I was also really interested in Barnett Newman and color field painting, which led to kind of these large swashes of kind of gestural painting that I bring into my work and abstraction, you know, how you can just change things around or not have to be loyal to the source in any way, you know, but but I, I love Barnett Newman and not only his just the flatness of the color and these large color field paintings that were about creating kind of an intimate scene in some ways with through color, but also, like how he would talk about the zips in his paintings being almost stand-ins for individuals, you know, like the ethics of you as an individual encountering a zip in his painting signifies the kind of verticality of a person, another another entity, you know, and what the ethics of that entails. And so in some ways, I was always interested in ethics in my work. And I started off being a social worker in Mexico City when I was growing up, and then came to study art in the U.S., but but that kind of, we started with this just the purely compositional side, but I think the ethics kind of goes into that as well in some ways.
0: So pushing the subjects of your pictures toward the viewer vis vis the picture plane is kind of a metaphor for how you want your viewer to feel closer to the people you're painting.
1: Yeah, exactly. It's it's a means of I guess empathizing or or somehow getting as close as one can to their experience in some ways. You know, that's another way that I do that is through this kind of faceting way of painting skin, you know, where it's it's multi-layers of different colors, which when I'm sitting with somebody face to face, obviously the temperature of their skin changes with these very s- subtle differences of warm and cool you know and that's something that you almost can only get when you're painting somebody in real life and so you you obviously can never know about the interiority of another person emmanuel levinas a, a philosopher i'm super interested in talks about that how like all ethics according to him comes from this face to face encounter which elicits a tremendous ethical response because you'll never know the interiority of another person so the closest you can get is the phenomenology of their face you know what that might imply for their for their interior state and that's that's part of the reason why i kind of paint people where they're where they're kind of engaged in their own thought process you know for themselves in a way in moments of contemplation rather than, than engaging the viewer fully.
0: All of which makes it all the more interesting to me that this intense flatness comes into your paintings back in 2013, 2014-ish in pictures of folded paper, uh, origami, for example, skulls, Tinkerbell. Was it a conscious decision to migrate that flatness from pictures of, of folded paper to pictures of people?
1: I started those paintings of paper because I was I was engaging in a long correspondence with a woman who I'm very close to who who doesn't want to be named but who was in a in a correctional facility and she would send me these letters over a really long period of time and so it was my way of witnessing her place of confinement to kind of re-inscribe these letters to kind of re retrace them as closely as I could. You know, I couldn't make a portrait of her, but she was in some ways also really engaged with my portrait project. So she was making portraits of people in this correctional facility. And it kind of gave me an insight into obviously the huge injustices in our carceral system here in the United States. And because it was so expensive to call out of out of the jail, she would send me these letters, and so I would retranscribe them. And so those little folded pieces of paper were my my way of making a portrait of her over over a long period of time as well.
0: Another mainstay of your work is plants, flowers, and you quite often mix flowers and plants with pictures of people. Again, Matisse, Bernard, lots of lots of art history in that. We'll get to my art history fun in a moment. So in terms of your work, I'm thinking of paintings like The Knapp from 2015, but I'm also thinking of the work you do. You, you, you made at the Minneapolis Institute of Art in 2017, and that was on view there in 17 and 18, pictures such as, and I hope I pronounce all these names correctly, Nemo, Sumaya, and Bisharo Harvesting Flowers and Vegetables at Hope Community Garden which is a kind of a very different use of, of of flowers and plants. How did plants and portraiture come together within your practice and then and then why and then how and why is it stayed in it?
1: When I moved I started in Chicago and then I moved to New York around 2008 and I had a tiny studio and and so I started to go back to representational painting and I would buy these small flower bouquets in Mexico City visiting my home and I was thinking about this kind of gift-giving of flowers, you know. And I grew up with a mom that was a flower painter in Mexico, and she would also go to Xochimilco, you know, this the remnant of this floating garden in, in Mexico, and buy a huge amount of fla- uh, flowers and plants that she would then bring to our house. And so I grew up with – there's also such a long tradition – Uh, female flower painters, you know, Virginia Woolf often talks about how as women, we think back through our mothers. And so that linkage to these botanical paintings is kind of a reference to my mother, who I grew up with over dinner, we would have critiques of her flower paintings when I was a kid. And I'm just really interested in that kind of abundance of, of nature. You know, when during the pandemic, I was also walking a lot in nature and thinking about I guess, renewal from observing nature. And I, I made these diptychs that were kind of portraits of of healthcare workers and also sending them kind of metaphorical bouquets of flowers that, that were then hung as diptychs. So, So it just has been a long line that has kind of permeated my work, this idea of gift-giving through bouquets and kind of the lineage that in some ways is like a portrait of my life and also the abundance of flowers that in some ways is like the abundance of textiles also in in my work, you know, and in in some ways also kind of references a Mexican Baroque sensibility that I grew up around in in my home.
0: Well, there's certainly a heck of a lot of flowers in 17th and 18th century art made in Mexico and Peru, like so many flowers. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> so you mentioned the diptychs using maybe novena student nurse and succulents from 2020 as an example how do you think through or do you think through what flower or plant to join to a person
1: <laughs> it's it's really intuitive it's it's mostly like a color choice and sometimes i ask the sitters for input you know on on the work very often like do you want to be painted with this stefan for example he had this background that was this like yellow British kind of textile of uh, plants. And so I decided to pair him with an agapanthus, which is like a purple flower that was often painted by Monet and which actually we had in my garden growing up in Mexico City too. So it's, it's very intuitive, like who I what diptychs or it kind of might be about the type of light you know in the painting and how it might further the the narrative to include kind of a space and a landscape a, a still life that might further the narrative in the in the portrait
0: Matisse has come up a couple times so so let's just kind of dive into art history here the first place i want to do that was within a number of pictures in which you have updated the dream motif that Bernard and Picasso and Matisse all used and and used a heck of a lot. Bernard makes a, a great 1928 dream painting. Picasso in 1932 famously paints La Rev, which was a painting he makes during a period when he was trying to lure Matisse back into painterly discourse with him. And it worked, of course, because Matisse went on to make dream pictures in 1935 and, and 1940. And you've made a lot of dream paintings. So Marissa from 2014, Hector from 2015, Randy from 2018. I'm going to presume that your address of especially Matisse, but probably the other two as well, is is pretty intentional. Why did you want to um, address and update those dream pictures?
1: That's interesting that that part of my Matisse reference is not very intentional actually. The dream is is because oftentimes because I was painting people so much from life, they would fall asleep. <laughs> they would sometimes fall asleep <laughs> because you know it's it's a very close kind of intimate experience to be painting somebody from life and really nuanced conversations come about. And I find very often people like just get lulled into a sleep mode and, or I, or I tell them to just relax a little bit because then, then they're not as anxious watching me paint them, watching their painting being done, you know, so I do, it goes back again to, I obviously love those, those paintings that you referenced, Bonard, I also love his, Paintings of baths, you know, those are really wonderful. I've never painted a bath, but maybe uh, one day. you young. <laughs> that was his last period. But, you know, people will be sometimes either watching horror films while I paint them on YouTube or or they're, they'll fall asleep. It's it's one of those poles, or either they'll be anxious although, or they'll get super, super relaxed because we'll have a really nice chemistry and they'll, they'll just feel very comfortable. And since they might sit with me from three to five hours to seven hours in one sitting sometimes with breaks, of course, and food, then they are, it's, it's just comfortable to be sleeping. And and it goes back again to that notion of just kind of a space where they're in their own thoughts. And, you know, oftentimes when I was making these portraits of undocumented people, the discourse around undocumented individuals in the media is is so single, single-minded, you know, and not as, it's all about how they're disenfranchised rather than how they might have a rich inner world. So I guess sleep was kind of a metaphor for thinking about their, their inner world or their imagination. And yeah, we can talk about Matisse in terms of, I guess it's just from seeing so many Matisse paintings also that, that that and Picasso, of course, and you know Bonnard. I'm I'm really much more interested in them in terms of color and their complex, weird color relationships than than necessarily the themes and how how they paint people. That is pretty unconscious, I guess.
0: You mentioned undocumented immigrants, and for you know over a decade now, Congress has bounced around uh, versions of a bill known as the Dream Act, which would provide uh, residency, permanent residency, or pathway to permanent residency for undocumented immigrants who entered the U.S. as, as children. The full name of the thing is the Development, Relief, and Education for Alien Minors Act, good Lord. But of course, it's been popularly known as the DREAM Act forever. Inevitably, I was wondering if your paintings of people who are quite often not culturally constructed as white, your paintings of them sleeping is a reference metaphorical perhaps to the dream act
1: that's that's a this is a wonderful connection no it's not that direct you know but i mean the dream act is don't get me started on that it's is it, it would be the least to give them the dignity of people that really are sustaining our economy our workforce you know this country could not be run without the labor of so many people that are working without a living wage Without you know proper compensation and a living wage, and I think that it's not so direct it's so interesting the dream act and them dreaming, you know, but it's it was mostly this kind of i'm you know i I'm interested in, for example, how Hegel thinks that that the most revolutionary moment is really the the moment of thinking for yourself and kind of uh, a moment of negation where you're not kind of Entertaining the other, you know, Hegel talks about like revolutionary moments as moments of fantasy or thought first, you know, and so I was thinking about how people, people's inner life can be shown through these backgrounds through pointing to references of textiles or crafts or how they even the 19th century surroundings that, that Benjamin and Matisse would would reference in their paintings, Matisse and his paintings, full of kind of tactile experiences.
0: You noted a few minutes ago that you most often think of your address of Matisse and Bonnard as involving bright color and textiles and kind of a compression of space by, you know, with these just spectacular backgrounds that kind of bring a painting forward for us. And we've talked a bit about flattening space already, of course, but I want to talk a little bit about how kind of people work within that. Often you have people standing out within patterns and grids. The people generally remain primary. But then there's a picture from 2019, like Patricia and I boogie on Broadway, in which the patterning almost overwhelms, maybe does overwhelm the two figures in which the left-hand third of the picture is an abstraction, maybe a floral-based abstraction, and in which you include a mirror like straight out of Bernard and and, and Matisse. I mean, they both love to do that in in paintings and for Matisse and drawings too. And then the one other art historical reference that lives in this painting, which is one of my absolute favorites of yours, is the textile on the floor. It's purple and green in a way that reminds me of, of, of Hockney, who of course is one of the great Europeans and recent synthesizers of Matisse. So I was hoping that maybe using this picture, you could tell me a little bit about how you want your figures to exist and jump out from or blend into the intense patterning that you surround them with and how much I guess you rely on Matisse and Bernard in so considering.
1: That's. I'm glad we're talking about that picture because... That's a portrait of my best friend and I, Patricia Tribe, who's also a painter and who we've had like a painterly discussion since undergrad, you know, since we were like 20 or 19 almost. And so the the painting on the left is actually me reenacting her painting, her abstract painting. And then I was thinking of like us getting dressed, getting ready to paint, both of us, you know, like in some ways. And I was thinking of Broadway Boogie Woogie by Mondrian and just thinking about, you know, him loving dance, him loving jazz music, even though his paintings, you would never know that he was like a crazy dancer, supposedly, but but he loved going dancing. And obviously, his paintings are about rhythmic kind of interactions. And so I'm putting in this painting, I'm putting my jacket on kind of as as if we're both getting ready to to make our work, you know? And, and so I wanted to make the painting super dense. And it's interesting that you also mentioned Hockney because one of the things I love about Hockney is how he references Van Gogh, you know, how he will have like a a mark for the sky, you know, like Hockney, Van Gogh finds marks for everything in, in his drawing, but even in his paintings. And so that rug that I painted with all these like kind of dry brush purple marks over the purple and green is a way of finding a mark for everything and activating the whole, every single part of the, of the field of the painting in, in some kind of energy to kind of elicit this, the, the kind of metaphor of us being painters and and this relationship in some ways, you know, she's, I'm looking at the painting she's looking into the, I mean, looking into the painting kind of um, absorbative quality. And she's like kind of, convex or something like she's you know the the difference between convexity and concavity with Picasso also with like form with like geometric abstraction so all these different kind of abstract languages of interiority look uh, how a, a painting might collapse inwards or expand outwards like the color field painters or different moments of Matisse as well before the color field painters So, yes, it's a very full work because of this kind of intense subject matter as well.
0: I think in a lot of your work, the figures who are wearing and or are surrounded by intense patterning stand out. And in this picture, because of the intense patterning in what the two women are wearing, they kind of both stand out and blend in to the background. Is that attention you often think about as you're making paintings full of people and patterns?
1: Yeah. Yeah. How, how a face might, you know, the faces might be the calmest part in this painting or the one place of rest in some ways, but yeah, I'm interested in how a pattern might almost with this one and with some others, I guess I wanted almost a dissonant color scheme, you know, where, where I'm thinking also of Matisse, where, where he really pushes sometimes the limits of what an interesting color or tasteful color choice might be you know but making it almost like really dissonant
0: so speaking of your 2019 i think and after paintings of dancers um either often or always salsa dancers i don't know enough about dance to speak with confidence as i understand it and having read interviews you've done before you like dance you like to dance you like salsa dancing
1: Mm. Mm-hmm.
0: Yeah, very much. <laughs> yeah, so so I mean obviously that's one reason to make pictures of that, right? But we've also talked a bit about how you think through the relationship between figures with within a painting and and how you present that and them. Was part of your interest in painting salsa dancers that it provided a way to think through both how two two people and sometimes given the backgrounds of some of the pictures more. <laughs> Two people interact and how they move around and with each other.
1: In some ways, yeah. How it's it was it's a way of showing kind of that reciprocal relationship. But I was I was mostly interested in those I was going to dance clubs with my friends who I painted, Camilo and various other people every Thursday during the Trump era, you know, as a way of like Alice Walker talks about how hard times require furious dancing as a way of purging or letting it all out. And then, and it's, they were just such interesting spaces for me because, you know, in the dance floor, it's in some ways a very democratic space. And there's all different types of Latino experience that gets manifested in this, in the dance salsa dance floor, because, either you dance on one, you dance on two, you, you have styling the, the every, every Latin American country really that, or, you know, it's not only Latin American expresses their dance very differently, you know? And, and so I was very interested in that kind of social space and I would get subjects from those, those, every time I'd go dancing, then I would ask people to pose. I would, you know, it was a way of getting, into that kind of strange space of that's that's a one I'm still obviously a lot of us are thinking through this Latinx identity and you know how it's ethnicity, not a race and how non-heterogeneous it is you know so but it's it's very interesting to think of it's also oftentimes couples and so like you said it is a really interesting formal device to kind of think about relationships between two people but also groups as as well. When I paint more, I was painting these women who were part of a dance troupe as well.
0: Two of my favorites, we'll have both of these on, on on the show page, are Nina Dreams of DJing from 2021, in which a figure sitting on probably a stool, but maybe a chair, is in front of representations of dancers on the wall behind her with a very Matissean floral arrangement right in the middle. And Raina del Cha-Cha-Cha, Julie and Jeff from 2019, which has the Matisse or Bernard scene in a window with two dancers in front of the window. And as I look at that picture, the only way we read them, visually read them as standing up is because we think of them as dancing. You know, you have, you have laid them, forgive the pun, right on top of each other, kind of like the scene in the background.
1: Yeah, that's interesting. I, I, that's one of my favorites too. This La Reina del Cha Cha Cha, the background was actually I made a painting of this children's dance group in Washington Heights, which was the cutest thing. I, I would go and witness. These one of the dancers I painted, Jimena, that I that I met over a long period of time. She told me that she volunteered and taught this class for kids in Washington Heights. So I ended up getting consent from all the parents to be able to paint their children. And the background in the Reina de Cha 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 comes from one of the classrooms from that setting. Actually, it was completely disconnected from the figures, but. But I ended up it ended up helping with this kind of color scheme. That, that, so that yellow tree came from actually a totally different painting space. But yeah, they're layered, they're kind of obstruct. she's obstructing his face, that kind of half face, which I guess you pointed out is in Matisse a lot, which I, I somehow must have absorbed and not noticed. And also the, the Nina Dreams of DJing was this DJ who I met. During my time in um, Los Angeles and during the pandemic, she wasn't able to DJ. So I just imagined her in this kind of dream world of of her when she comes back to, to that. I also made a show recently at the Kemper Museum that's called Aquí Se Puede. And it's all about these different groups of dancers in Kansas City, that are part of the dance scene, you know, and, and we had the opening this summer and it was a crazy dance party. Usually now the openings of the shows like kind of bring people together as well in this party where people that might not have done salsa dancing before get to experience it.
0: We were talking about your use of a mirrored space in a picture in which you included yourself a little earlier. Cherie from 2021 and the Kemper Show is kind of a further building upon that that space we'll have an image of it on man podcast as well one other one other matisse thing i wanted to to hit matisse loved painting flowers in front of bright textiles bright backgrounds bright complicated backgrounds and boy you sure aren't shy about doing that yourself paintings like succulent weave or blanket from 2015 in which I mean, they're almost like suffocating in their intensity. Even though these pictures tend to be pretty small, blanket, for example, is sixteen by twelve. Obviously, that's something that you've noticed in Matisse and decided you wanted to do yourself. Why?
1: Well, I was. These are often crafts, also that I bring back from markets in Mexico. Sometimes, like, and I was thinking of retranscribing the kind of embroidery that it takes. Oftentimes, these shirts that are that are done especially by indigenous women in Mexico and kind of retranscribing the care it takes to make these these craft traditions and it's a way of kind of punctuating or making a mark as we were talking about before with Hockney thinking about Van Gogh and this mark making that's so intrinsic to oil painting but also is in crafts such as weaving and I just think it's a it's a great way of kind of interweaving these decorative arts you know which kind of go together flowers and and textiles and and the point to kind of an exuberance of the of the pictorial space that kind of points in this kind of you know the that spills out of the frame in some ways
0: let's wrap up by going back to your Tate Liverpool commission i don't think i gave the title of it earlier i should have it's team time storytelling Alder Hey Children's Hospital Emergency Department COVID pandemic painting made last year in, in 2020. At least that's the big headline painting. In that 12 minute video I referenced earlier, you talked about how kind of what it's like for people to see your work, people who are in the work to see the work, either studies or you're you're, you're making the big work, and how that because <laughs> of COVID couldn't couldn't work that way this time. Um, there's a great scene in, in the in the in the Tate video of you holding your laptop up to the painting while you're on zoom <laughs> and moving the, the laptop <laughs> yeah. forward across the picture and in, and in the video I think near the end you said that you really looked forward to getting to the hospital and meeting those people in person and you hoped it would be near the end of the show the show closed at Tate Liverpool on September 5th 2021 have you gotten to go back or not not go back. Have you gotten to go?
1: <laughs> <laughs> I went the last two weeks before my show closed and I got to meet all of these healthcare workers, a lot of them that came to a discussion we had with each with, with each of them talking in a round table about what it's been like for them to be on the front line. And the painting itself has this long title because, you know, I I kind of think almost of documentary photography with my titles, like referencing every part that I'm trying to document. And so it was this group of healthcare workers that had this initiative called Team Time Storytelling, where they would talk about their experience during COVID. And so I asked each of them to make a drawing of their experience. And so I put them in this like long kind of plastic chair that they have at the hospital itself and i put all the drawings and i retranscribed them as i have retranscribed other paper drawings in the past and so it was it was really wonderful to get to meet them all and to to participate in this discussion at Tate Liverpool it was a very celebratory occasion obviously we're not out of the pandemic yet but it was a moment where you know they were they were in the media quite a bit each one of the doctors and nurses that I painted, and they were at the opening in December 2020, even though I was not able to travel for it, but at least I got there over the summer.
0: Alisa Niesenbaum, thanks very much.
1: Thank you so much, Tyler. It was such a pleasure to speak with you.
0: Now on view at the Hammer Museum in Los Angeles, two special single gallery presentations by Brian and David Hart. Drawn from the Hammer Contemporary Collection, Brian Youngen's installation, The Evening Redness in the West, addresses the legacy of colonialism and violence in Hollywood westerns. Part of the museum's signature Hammer Project series, David Hart's installation, The Histories, Old Black Joe, centered on jacquard-woven tapestries in a quadraphonic soundtrack arranged by the legendary musician Van Dyke Parks, examines the relationships between culture, geography, and colonial histories in the Americas in the 19th century. Opening this weekend at the Hammer, Brian Youngin closes October 31st, and David Hart closes January 2nd. Details at hammer.ucla.edu. Support for The Man podcast comes from the Pulitzer Arts Foundation, a museum in St. Louis, Missouri, that believes in the power of direct experiences with art. Hannah Wilkie developed an unabashed, boundary-crossing art practice that includes sculpture, photography, video, and works on paper. On view through January 16, 2022 at the Pulitzer, Hannah Wilkie: Art for Life's Sake is the first major presentation of the artist's work in over a decade. This career-spanning exhibition encompasses the full arc of Wilkie's practice from the 1960s to her untimely death in 1993. The exhibition offers new perspectives on this critical and influential artist, revealing her to be a trailblazer who was as invested in advancing the position of women in society as she was in developing a unique artistic practice. For more information, please visit PulitzerArts.org. The Nasher Museum of Art at Duke University in Durham, North Carolina, has reopened to the public with a new exhibition, In Relation to Power, Politically Engaged Works from the Collection. The exhibition focuses on ways that artists comment on, and often vehemently resist, the dynamics of inequitable systems of power. The show includes more than 80 works by 57 artists, including works on paper, paintings, sculpture, photography, and video. Many works are on view at the Nasher for the first time, through February 13th. Also, Off the Map, the Provenance of a Painting, is an intimate exhibition that provides a case study and provenance research of a single work in the Nasher Museum's collection. Portrait of an Artist, attributed to Joseph Wright of Derby. From England to Berlin, New York to Durham, the 18th century painting has journeyed far and seen numerous owners, auction houses, and exhibitions since its creation 250 years ago. On view through January 9th. Visit nasher.duke.edu. Welcome back. Next up, Davide Gasparotto returns to the show to discuss the J. Paul Getty Museum's acquisition of Jacopo Bassano's 1554 The Miracle of the Quails. The picture goes on view at the Getty today. I just got a brand new JPEG of the picture, so a fresher one than the one you've been seeing bouncing across the internets in the last couple weeks. Be sure to go to manpodcast.com to have a look. It's pretty great. The nearly eight-foot-wide painting is a rare depiction of the Old Testament detailing of the miracle of the quails. Bassano based his visual account from a single line in the Bible's story. Davide Gasparato, welcome back to the Modern Art Notes podcast. Thank you very much, Tyler. It is very good to talk to you again. Despite spending much of his life living about 30 miles from Venice, Jacopo Bassano is generally considered one of the leading Venetian painters of the 16th century. A peer and colleague of Venetians such as Titian and Veronese and Tinaretto. How should we understand Bassano as fitting into this time and place? And then we'll and then we'll get to the picture.
2: Jacopo Bassano was an artist really of remarkable originality, who is in, in his lifetime enjoyed a reputation throughout Europe, we can say. And his decision to live his entire life in his native Bassano which is a small town about 70 miles from Venice in the mainland, where he established a successful family practice, didn't mean that he was a provincial painter. And Bassano in fact, today is rightly praised for his original and powerful style and recognized as the author of some of the most arresting and original pictures of the 16th century, especially works that combined an acute attention to the naturalistic detail and an interest in everyday activities with, at the same time, elegantly choreographed figures, very sophisticated composition. We have to say that his depiction of the Venetian mainland and sort of his attention to aspects of rural life coincided with the very specific moment in the history of Venice, which is when Venetians basically turned their interest more to the land than to the sea. In, in some way, is also the beginning of the decadence of Venice, but still, obviously, the city was uh, very wealthy and the decadence will be sort of a very long, uh, it will happen in a very long time, in the span of three centuries But some of Bassano's patrons were basically the same people who commissioned their countryside villas, the famous villas by Andrea Palladio in the mainland of Venice. So we have to think to this specific moment in the history of Venice and where Bassano Lived his entire life. He was the son of a painter, but he trained a modest painter, but he trained in Venice with the painter Bonifazio de Pitati in the early 1530s. And then, in the 1540s, he took a more an active role in the family business. The fact that he assumed the leadership of the Bassano workshop meant that uh, there was a dramatic shift to higher quality and more ambitious work. He painted chiefly for Bassano and surrounding towns, many altarpieces for churches, but also for sophisticated patrons in Venice where he was for sure a frequent visitor and he always stayed appraised of artistic developments. Bassano was a very curious artist, he was keenly attuned to the work of other painters and also was very quick to take up the most advanced ideas in painting. So basically he ran a profitable business but at the same time he was a very innovative uh, artist in his own time proposing an interpretation of the venetian naturalism in a way that is very different from that of titian veronese or tintoretto
0: and i think as we go along we'll be we'll be talking about some of those ways Let's start with the painting by talking about the biblical story that the painting represents. That story is The Miracle of the Quails, which is mentioned in the books of Exodus and Numbers. I I did Sunday school as a young lad and had never heard of The Miracle of Quails until a few days ago. (laughs) What is the story and why do you think
2: Bassano, or his patron for that matter, was interested in it? So you are right, absolutely right, is a very rare subject depicted in art. Uh, the depiction of this Old Testament episode, actually, in both the passages of Exodus and Numbers, basically the story doesn't go longer than a line. So it's a really a short sentence. It's when uh, the Israelites they escaped from Egypt, where you know they had this hard life of you know slavery, oppression. So they were fleeing life of slavery and oppression, but they were. They crossed the Red Sea, but then they were stuck in the desert and they were starving in the wilderness. And so God sent uh, two kinds of different foods. One is, I think, more commonly, one is an episode which is more commonly depicted is the episode of the falling of the manna, this sort of, you know, bread But the quails immediately precedes in the biblical narration, the episode of Manna. So basically, God is sending quails to the starving Israelites in the desert. And the way in which Bassano sort of depicts this episode is really striking and original, because basically in the painting, we have Moses and Aaron, who are portrayed on the left of the picture in the middle ground in sort of close, engaged in close conversation. And we recognize Moses. He has these two, the two rays, the two rays over the top of his head. The rays that sometimes are depicted in the Western tradition as horns because of that there was a misinterpretation of the Hebrew. And so the rays were interpreted as horns. And then he has his baton and he's talking with Aaron, his brother, who is dressed like as a priest. He was actually the high priest of the Jews. But the rest of the composition is really occupied by, by this animated and very naturalistic depiction of the people who gathered the birds miraculously fallen from the sky. The entire setting in some way, the landscape in the background is obviously more evocative than than the Sinai Desert that Bassano never saw, is really evocative of the pre-Alps and actually the Monte Grappa, the mountain that dominates Bassano, so Jacopo's hometown. But it's beautifully populated with these uh, tents, uh, of the Israelites' camp, so it's it's a very beautiful and suggestive uh, landscape. We have to say something of this picture because we know uh, we know fortunately uh, when this picture was painted. The painting was painted in 1554 for uh, the uh, Venetian nobleman Domenico Priuli, who was the owner of some mills in the area surrounding Bassano. So he had some properties as many Venetian noblemen in the mainland of Venice. And this is probably why he came into contact with Bassano. And we know this because, fortunately, for a certain portion of Jacopo's career, we have, it survived, an account book of Jacopo's workshop. So Libro dei Conti. In the Libro dei Conti, the picture is listed and described. I quote in Italian as l'istoria come vene le cotorniche al popolo d'Israel, so the story of how the quails were sent to the people of Israel. But we sort of don't know why the patron chose this very rare subject. We don't know if it was the patron, probably it was the patron to chose the subject. We may think that the painting was hanging in the uh, Portego, so the large room of his, the largest of the rooms of his Venetian palazzo, his Venetian home.
0: Before we pivot to the relationship between this painting and a possible pendant painting, I want to just kind of underline a couple things you said about the composition of the painting. We'll have an image of it on manpodcast.com, of course, and let me tell you, you got to go look. The quails you you mentioned are everywhere <laughs> in the painting, To find one in a kind of Where's Waldo-ish game is to, to find another one, and the quails just bring the eye through the painting, both in the foreground, where the quails are quite near to us, to the background, the Alps in the background, where we see quails, you know, raining down from the sky, if you will. You mentioned those tents, you know, they have a pyramidal triangular shape. That pyramid triangular shape is carried forward in the composition of the figures in the painting as well. So there are these cascading triangles that are, that are moving toward the viewer from the Alps to the tents to, to the arrangement of the figures. The composition is just extraordinary. The painting is also huge. I mean, huge. It's almost eight feet wide. And it was likely conceived, you have noted in the press release, as a pendant to Bassano's Lazarus and the Rich Man, which is a painting now in Cleveland. It's been in Cleveland since 1939, in fact. So why do you think they're related, if you will, and what story or idea might have been told by their being commissioned or hung together?
2: This is a a great question. And obviously we we can talk a lot about how wonderful, complex, and sophisticated is this composition. I think one of the most sophisticated compositions that Jacopo ever painted. And the idea that the Cleveland picture could be a pandan of the miracle of the quails was already put forward by other scholars. So I'm not Mm -hmm. the first. But I believe that there is a strong possibility because of the dimensions, probably because of the composition also, And also because uh, there is Domenico Priuli, we know that Domenico Priuli, a few years before in 1551, commissioned another large painting to Jacopo, and which is again documented in the account book. But unfortunately, this time Jacopo does not specify the subject matter of the painting which was commissioned to him by Domenico Priuli. But it's highly probable that the two paintings were conceived as a pair, or at least that when Jacopo painted The Miracle of the Quest in 1554, he had in mind, obviously, the other painting that he painted a few years before for the same patron. And they were probably hanging, we can imagine that they were hanging in the same in the same big room of the Palazzo, probably facing each other. There are many things that they have in common. I think the compositional ambition, the stark contrast of light and shade, the sort of the same palette, which is characterized by these sort of earthy tones, no brown, but also animated by these sudden sparks of brighter colors. The application of paint is very similar, loose and free brushstrokes. Both works are very important in terms of uh, the fact in the sense that they represent an important moment of transition in Bassano's career from his more experimental mannerist style of the 1540s to his mature style when he's starting to paint in a different way during the 1550s, where in some way this style were attention to to naturalistic detail is very skillfully combined with uh, the formal sophistication that characterizes his earlier paintings of the 1540s. And I think also that the pairing of the two subjects, one from the Old and the other from the New Testament, is important and reinforces the idea that they were executed as pandan. On one side, we have a story where The theme of the Cleveland picture is the story of the denial of sustenance on the part of a selfish man that then got punished. While in the miracle of the quails, in some way, the theme is God's beneficent care of his chosen people. In some way, there is a moralizing, a strong moralizing lesson here. Unfortunately, we don't know very much about the patron. But he may have uh, wanted this sort of pairing and these two stories to tell a moral lesson.
0: The Cleveland picture is also built around a triangle. This one with the head of a, a young boy at the apex of the triangle and on, on, in, in the space created at the right. On the right hand side of the triangle is where the rich guy is. And in the space created in the left are two dogs and the beggar and and so there's a compositional relationship i don't know about similarity but relationship too maybe maybe one of these days you and you and cleveland will put them together
2: <laughs> yes i think it would be it would be really wonderful to see the two pictures together yeah it, yeah it would be actually the first time since the cleveland picture was often lent to exhibitions even to the famous, I think, important 1992 exhibition in Bassano, which I have seen when I was uh, kind of a young student. Mm. I just got my graduation. But our picture was never seen in any exhibition, in any major show, was always kept very private. So only a very few scholars have seen it in the flesh. And this is also exciting for me because it's a great moment I think when a work of art an important work of art uh, goes from a private collection to a sort of a public museum where it can be seen by everybody, can be studied, can be appreciated.
0: Cleveland has only lent its picture once in 80 years, so it would be quite a thing on a on a, on a bunch of levels. I keep nerding out on the on the composition of of your new painting cuz it's 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 really striking. One of the things about it that interests me is it's a really at least in terms of the figures it's a really shallow composition it almost feels like a painted frieze why do you think bassano shoves all those people all of the almost all of the people in the picture up against the picture plane and 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 is that is there is there something within that compositional strategy that relates to the story itself
2: I'm not sure about this. It's true that your observation that space is very compressed and the protagonists are pushed toward the foreground is absolutely true. The idea of this, for example, of the figures uh, in the very foreground, it's very typical of Bassano. So to have these figures, uh, they draw you into the composition, especially, you know, the figure on the right side, and the figure on the left also the figures emerging sort of from the the figure who, the figure who rises into the picture at left and also the other one uh, and the figures seen from behind this seems to be really a sort of a trademark of uh, Jacopo and again there is this uh, to me what is fascinating is this sort of not contrast but this uh, presence at the same time in the picture of uh, figures which are rendered with uh, an extremely elegant artifice, like, for for example, this sort of columnar, statuesque figure at the center of the composition, or the two sort of very abstract figures of of Moses and Aaron, they seem painted almost by, by El Greco, you know, they are painted in this very quick uh, way with the with very uh, free brush strokes, uh, And we in fact, there is something here because uh, El Greco, obviously, when he was in Venice, uh, in the 1570s, he studied carefully works by not only by Tintoretto, but also by Bassano. And then there are these more delicate passages, uh, of observation of uh, from from life, like the mother and the child, the mother with the child uh, in her lap, or the nude boy seated uh, in the very foreground, seen from behind, near the basket of flowers. So there are moments of uh, intense uh, naturalism and observation from life, really mixed with. Uh, Something which is almost abstract, which is very sophisticated, very staged and choreographed. The colors are are, are incredible. The range of colors is absolutely striking. Uh, this floral rose, uh, this more pallid green, uh, the brown and the white. The white the, the white are really lustrous. And they are applied, you know, with these wonderfully free, almost improvised brushstrokes. I think that to me, the painting in some way seems very natural, but at the same time is a highly calculated composition. There is a highly calculated simplicity that to me lends the picture this sort of mysterious and very poetic aura. I, I I always love the, the really the aura that the painter is able to, to create around the, the story. When Roberto Longhi published this picture for the first time in 1948, he, for example, emphasized that, that with this painting, in some way, Jacopo introduced one of these very first rustic interpretations of the Old Testament subject, but pointing to some of these memorable details of the picture.
0: A number of scholars have suggested that this picture, and indeed other Bassanos, sometimes seem like
2: a prelude to Caravaggio. Do we see that
0: here in your new picture?
2: I think so. The 1550s are a very special moment in Bassano's career. It's a moment when he is transitioning in some way, and he's creating his more mature and the more mature style, the style with which we recognize in some way, Bassano is one of the greatest painter of the Venetian 16th century, which means what I was saying before, that there is this sort of uh, presence at the same time of something very sophisticated and almost cerebral, but joined with this fabulous observation from life, Obviously, Bassano, it was many years ago that the Italian scholar Roberto Longhi wrote beautifully about the so-called northern Italian precedents of Caravaggio. You know, we know that Caravaggio obviously was born in Milan, was born in Lombardy, northern Italy. And during his youth, he must have absorbed the lesson of a group of painters who mainly worked in the Venetian terraferma, in the ve- mainland of Venice. Among them Bassano, but also Lorenzo Lotto, Savoldo, Moretti and Moroni, painters active in Brescia, in Bergamo, and and in Bassano, like Bassano. In some way, in contrast with the more noble and official style of painting prevailing in Venice, especially with Titian and Veronese, all these painters were keen observers of more humble details of daily life. They were also subtle and attentive portrait painters. And with these, I don't want to say that Titian was not a great portrait painter, but these painters, they brought something very personal to portraiture. They were sort of able to portray really the inner feelings of their sitters. And they were also very interested, like Bassano is interested always in our picture, too, in the role that light plays in painting. So I believe that in this sense, they are important precedents of Caravaggio, and we can think that Caravaggio must have studied the works of Bassano, and for example, while while painting one of these most famous altarpieces in Rome, the Madonna di Loreto, the so-called Madonna dei Pellegrini, Madonna of the Pilgrims for the Church of Sant'Agostino in Rome he may have well remembered the many figures of shepherds seen from behind with their dirty feet depicted by Jacopo Bassano in many of his paintings. So in this sense, Bassano and you know, and Lotto and Savoldo and Moroni were important precedents. They were in the eyes of Caravaggio when he moved from the north to Rome.
0: Yeah, the collision of the real and the miraculous in, in your new painting is, is a lot of the excitement and the tension within it. Davide Gasparato,
2: thanks so much. Thank you very much, Tyler. It was great, as usual, to talk with you.
0: That's all for this week's show. The Modern Art Notes podcast is edited by Wilson Butterworth. Special thanks to Steve Roden, who created the sound for the program.